want to pick up right in the middle of that story. So understand, he's still coming in. And if you've ever walked up to Jerusalem, you're aware that as you crest over what is known as the Mount of Olives, or in the ESV referred to as the Mount of Olivet, you see laid out before you Jerusalem and the temple in all of its majesty. And it would have been gleaming in the sunshine. And you go down a valley and back up. Well, as Jesus moves down this valley and back up, in the midst of all these chants, this is what happens. And I'm going to start in verse 41, if you want to follow along. And when he drew near and saw the city, once again, he's looking across this valley now. Look at the next line. He wept over it, saying, Would that, you, that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, that is incredibly contrasting, isn't it? I mean, it's almost jarring, because here is the parade. Here is the celebration. Here is the chance. This is our king. And the middle of that, the one that they're chanting about, the one that they're crying out for, begins to, he begins to weep. There's very few times in Scripture that we're given the insight for Jesus to weep. And the other one is found in John chapter 11. And in that occasion, John is at, I mean, Jesus is at a tomb. And two ladies named Mary and Martha, sisters, have come and they've begged Jesus to come and heal their brother because he was sick. And yet Jesus waits a little bit too long. And their brother Lazarus passes away. And Jesus still shows up on the scene. And by this point, he's already been, been buried and everybody's gathered around the tomb because he's been asked to take him there. And in that moment when he sees the distraught sisters and those that have gathered around the tomb to mourn and how much pain there is, John lets us know that at that moment Jesus wept. Perhaps you've heard it because it's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. But in this moment and in that moment, what's the comparison? What is Jesus weeping over? And he's weeping over things that were supposed to be different. There's, there's that deep inner struggle in us that it was not supposed to be this way. It was not supposed to turn out this way. And there's some of you that you know that pain because you've cried those tears. You, it's something that has to do with your children. And as young adults or in their adult days, they made decisions that break your heart and you, now there's a fractured relationship or they're lost somewhere into the world and you're not even sure when they're going to call home again and you cry and you weep with grandchildren that were going to come that never happened. Whatever it is, you grieve over the memories that were not going to be made and it was not supposed to be this way. And you've cried those tears. We can at least understand this pain because it realizes that death was never supposed to have this power over us. Or in this moment, as he looks down over the city, that's crying out for him to be king, but he knows in that moment they don't understand the kind of king he's supposed to be. And they've already built roadblocks against him. And he knows that they're going to end up rejecting him. And with all of the love and the empathy that he has, he knows it was not supposed to be this way because he sees what's coming. And look what he says. Let's go back to our scripture. That's a powerful phrase. And what he's wishing for them is wishing that they would understand the way of peace. Now, this 
is incredibly relevant to what's going on, that they are not understanding the way of peace, and how many of us have pursued any other way but the way of peace? How many of you have pursued something that you thought was going to pay off the good, and you weep over it? And so Jesus is coming, He's coming to bring the way of peace, and that's what He wants them to know and understand. And so, in this very dramatic moment, Jesus enters the city. And what I want you to understand is we're going to go through most of 19 and a little bit of 20, and I'm going to try to give you this, this aerial view of what's going on. And we're going to watch this thread unfold as they try to figure out what to do with Jesus, and Luke turns around and asks us the same question. So the very next step, verse 45, says this. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. The, and he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus comes in with a parade, and his first stop is to go straight to the temple. Now that makes sense, because if he's king, everybody's going to anticipate him to be a religious, a spiritual king as well as a... Show up and say, hey, guess what? Um, here's how it's all going to unfold. I'm, I'm in charge now. He walks in to what is known as the, the court of the Gentiles. And if you understand anything about the temple, and this story is recorded in all four Gospels, that's how significant it is. He shows up in the court of the Gentiles because there was this sort of circles around the temple. And depending on who you were is how close you could get to the temple. Now, in the very center was the temple, and nobody actually went into the temple except the priests and the high priests themselves. But these courtyards were around, and ultimately only... Faithful Jewish males could come into the inner courtyard. And outside of that was these other courtyards, one of them being the courtyard of the Gentiles. In fact, there's actually archaeology that's discovered. They've discovered these warning signs that were posted around the temple that said, no Gentiles beyond this point. And the Gentiles, anybody that was not from the Jewish faith. And part of the practice of the temple was that you had to when Jew, the Jews were spread all over the, the world that time, and they came, they brought their foreign currency, and they had to have it changed into the temple currency, as well as they would bring their way of trying to transport an animal from the distance they came. So this created a type of revenue, and this created a marketplace feeling, a marketplace atmosphere. And so what occurred was, they started setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles. Now, it was originally intended to be a place for the Gentiles to come and pray and worship, and it was now overtaken by commerce. And so what had happened is the people of the Lord had created a barrier for other children of God. They created an obstacle, something that was interfering with those that were desiring to come and worship God. They had all this commotion, all this commerce. And Jesus even lets us know through the words of being a robber that some of it was illegal, some of it was underhanded, some of it was manipulative, some of it was extortionist. And what they're doing is they're robbing from God the very thing that He wants. 
And he wants a place for his children to come and be in relationship with him, and yet other children of God were preventing that from happening. And one of the things I take away from this is we've got to be very, very careful that as we follow God, that we're not making barriers for others to follow God. And oftentimes in our churches, we can get so far off on this. And we can create these rules and these regulations and these traditions that cause others to fall away, saying, I don't understand all the inside language. I don't understand all that you have to do. Or even say, well, I'm clearly not worthy of that because they seem to have it all together. They seem to know what's all going on. We've got to be very careful with that because what Jesus does when he sees this scene is that he walks into this scene and he begins to throw some tables around. This is not nice, sweet Jesus. This is Jesus with a righteous indignation. And he's not simply upset at the commerce practices going on. What infuriates him is that something's been built between him and the children that God's trying to reach. And for some of you that are parents, you understand that. That we can get along fine until I come in between you and your children somehow. Or somehow there's a threat of your children. Or somehow there's a struggle there. And then it's game on, right? There's a different atmosphere. There's a different relationship when the children are threatened or somehow there's going to be a gap or a barrier between you and Jesus, as God, is going to fight through that. And so he begins to clean out the temple, clear this empty space. But did you notice what he does after that? Look at the second half of that. Right after he clears the temple, what it says. Let's go back to those, to those verses again. He says, saying this is my house. And then, after it's all cleared out, verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. So, understand what he did. He cleared out the temple, and then he, and maybe you can put it this way, he filled the temple again, and he filled it with his teaching. And his teaching has even those that are in power and authority, they're on alert. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But look at this. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. There was something about what Jesus was providing that was so life-giving that he was filling it up, and now they're threatened for a whole nother reason. One, their business has been upset. They've been called out for the obstacles, and now Jesus is filling the temple again. In fact, let me show you one more place. Chapter 20 now, look what it says, beginning at verse 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching, here he is, this is doing what he does in the temple, the people in the temple, and preaching the gospel message. Jesus is in the place of the Lord, preaching the gospel message, and what we know from Luke is that this is a gospel message, not just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world, Gentiles included, and there's good news because that includes you and me. And so... Jesus himself is redeeming the temple almost symbolically as it's been cleared out. Now he is creating the new path for those to come in relationship to God. And the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, they came up and now they're having to wrestle with what do we do with Jesus? Not the king that we thought. And he said to them, 
Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? You ever had that happen to you? Somebody fires a question at you, or, or you fire a question, and they, get, they give you a question back? I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, and this is Jesus' cousin, the one that was out at the Jordan River baptizing people, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another. So Jesus poses the question. I love this scene. It's almost like they got in the corner and held it up and said, we'll be right back with you one second. Let us figure out our answer. And they realize they've got a problem. If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that, that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's the struggle. They know they've got an optics problem. They know that the social media of the day is going to light them up if they, don't, if they engage in this. Because they want to say so strongly <clears throat> that Jesus does not have divine authority. That he is not operating from God, the Heavenly Father. <clears throat> but they also know that when he asked that John, who was very popular and preached a very powerful message, that the masses saw him as somebody of authority, saw him somebody of valid, that was valid and could validate Jesus. And they know that if they answer that one, they have to validate Jesus also. And they know if they say no to that, then they're going to have a problem in their hand with just how that plays in the press. And so they avoid the question altogether. And Jesus realizes their game. Because they are asking the question that we have to struggle with. What will we do with Jesus? But they think, they think they can simply avoid the question. And Jesus is not ultimately going to let them avoid the question. And we don't get to simply avoid the question either. We will have a time in our life where we have to deal with who is Jesus. And Jesus brings it out in the very next story. Jesus tells a parable. And he launches into a parable about the owner of a vineyard that put it on loan to some farmers. And this co-op of farmers managed and cared for the vineyard. And then he begins, this, the owner sends his representatives, because he's off in a distant country, he sends his representatives to collect from the, the, the farmers what's owed him. And they do not respect the authority of the messengers. And so he keeps sending more and more important people. And finally, he sends his own son to collect and claim what is his. And they get together, and they conspire against him to say, if we kill the son, we can have this land, and it can be all ours. And that's what they do. They kill some. And Jesus tells this story, and then I want you to look at this part. He looks right at these men, and he lays this teaching on them. So let's pick it up. Verse 17 of chapter 20. In the same context of just having told that parable, he says this, but he looked directly at them. Now pause just a second there. Can you imagine that moment with Jesus looking directly at you? Now when I grew up, mom could give me a look, right? 
Mom had a look, and all she had to do was give me the look, and I knew exactly what it meant, and it was never good. But here's Jesus, and he looks directly at them, and he says this. What then is this, what then is this what that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's quoting. And he says, there's a cornerstone. It's here. And the cornerstone is still important today, but it was vital to any kind of construction then. And if you know anything about how they constructed their ancient temples and their monuments and their palaces and their official places of business and the city walls, they would lay out a cornerstone. And when the cornerstone was put in place, once it was aligned, it didn't move. It didn't budge. Usually it was a massive stone. A few years ago I had the opportunity to travel to Jerusalem. And on part of the tour at the Temple Mount, they have excavated down. And what you need to understand, when you see pictures of the Wailing Wall or the Temple Mount, you're only seeing the top portion of that wall. It goes many more feet down below ground, where it's originally constructed. What you're seeing is what's built up over time of layers of dirt and other construction. Well, they've dug down, and some of the most massive cut stones that exist anywhere in the world are down there. In fact, they're not even totally sure of the full dimensions of them because they can only see the face and the dimension that we're looking at. And one of those down there somewhere is the cornerstone. And it's massive, and you even try to look at it, how do you move something like that? But once the cornerstone was put in place, it was not moved. Everything else in the construction was built off of it. It was placed perfectly in alignment, so that everything that followed it was in alignment. It was the guide. It was the North Star. It was the one that you referenced back to time and time and time and time again. If the cornerstone was off, the building was off. So great care was placed on the cornerstone, and then it did not move. They would not put it in a place where it would sink. They did not put a place where it would settle. It would be firm, solid, immovable, and everything else lined off that. And what Jesus is saying, there's a cornerstone. He says, I'm the cornerstone. Everything else needs to align off of me. And then as they are wrestling with what type of authority do they see as Jesus? And he's saying, here's who I am. Here's why you're going to have to deal with me. Here's why you're going to have to figure out how do I fit into your structure. He then gives this He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's not an option to avoid the stone. And this seems like a strange sentence at first, but let me tell you what I believe is going on here. He's saying, there will be a type of brokenness that comes to you. It could be the brokenness where you fall on me and you trust me. And your life comes to me and it's broken in pieces because it's out of alignment with me, but it can come in alignment with me and I can be the one that rebuilds your life. That's one kind of brokenness. That's the brokenness that comes and says, I've hit rock bottom. 
I've, I, I have nowhere else to go. Now, finally, in this broken self that I am, I'm going to turn and I'm going to put myself in your hands. And some of you have been there. And you can remember that moment where your life was way out of alignment. But you brought it in because it was so heart-wrenching and breaking. He says that's one kind of breaking that you can experience. But there's another kind. If you choose to not fall on me and trust me, there is a day coming. There is a judgment day coming. And that one involves a different kind of breaking, a crushing of you. And so here's the two options. But in either one of them, you do have to deal with the question of who Jesus is. What kind of authority does he have? And here's the question that I want you to take away from this passage. Is, will you align your life with the cornerstone? Will your life be aligned by the cornerstone or not? And this is a powerful one because we are so tempted to align our lives by so many other things. We can align our lives by what mom and dad wanted. We can align our lives by our own charted success that we think that we need to be on. We can align our lives by cues that we take from the world of what it means to be popular, successful, wealthy, effective, influential, whatever that would be. We can take our alignment from the politics that are around us. We, we can choose all these different places to take our alignment from, but that comes with a crushing kind of brokenness. <clears throat> or we can acknowledge that I'm not the best one to handle my own life. And I need to put it in the hands of the one that can. Which means my pride, my ego, my addictions, my wants will need to be broken. But they'll be broken by the one that can bring in alignment with him and a healing for them. There's so many cases. And I can think of story after story, but one of them is Charles Colson. Charles Colson was wrapped up in the Watergate scandal of the Nixon administration. <clears throat> and he was arrogant and prideful and a self-made man. Through the process of the Watergate and the prosecution and going to prison, Colson realized that his life was out of line with the true cornerstone. And he gives his life to Jesus. And if you know anything about his life from then on, Colson said about having this incredibly powerful ministry, no longer pursuing making Charles Colson's name great, not making his own fame and increasing it, but lifting up the name Jesus, and he launched a ministry for those in prison. And a, around this country, across this country, a prison ministry that impacted the lives of thousands, all because he was willing to make his life in alignment with the cornerstone. We laid out this series long before we knew about COVID and long before we knew about the current racial tension going on right now over the last couple of weeks in our country. But I'm telling you what I believe is that by God's, God's divine planning, this speaks to us incredibly powerful 
right now. And so, as you wrestle with your life being in alignment, I just want to speak just a few words to what's going on. And one of the things that I have for us is that we would make sure that we are aligning our lives with the cornerstone. And it's so tempting, and this is particularly for, for all, but I'm going to particularly talk to my, my white brothers and sisters, that we've got to be very careful that we're not actually trying to align ourselves to whatever popular pundit, whatever talk show, whatever um, commentator <clears throat> that we fancy. And not actually trying to align our lives to that, but align our lives to Jesus. And be careful that we're not actually trying to build arguments against the other side. But instead, what we're doing is we're following the example of the one that we're aligning our lives to, the cornerstone. The one that's immovable and unbudgeable and the one that we can trust. And we're aligned to him and the one that also was willing to take on all the injustices. Not make arguments against them, but take on the injustices onto himself. And tell all of those who are, were oppressed, all of those who are sidelined, all of those who are wondering, do I matter? Say, yes, you do. You matter this much. And lay down, lay down his life. Can we begin there in this listening mode? And that's why I'm so grateful to my friend and fellow minister, Christopher Stevens from the Avenue G Church. And this past Wednesday, we got to have a great conversation. That one's available online. And I encourage you to go seek that out. But in that, when I was saying to Chris, <clears throat> what do we need to be doing? And Chris said, we need to be listening to each other again. And I think he's absolutely right. Because it's not about me, it's actually not about Chris, but it is about the one that together, Chris and I, and maybe you also, the one that you serve, the one that laid down his life, the one that took on the injustice, the one that, that was willing to be broken so that you and I could be made whole. So I'm encouraging us to take our cues from that. And part of that process is going to be that we don't define other groups by the worst of the other groups. We've got a friend here today that, that helps us out. It's Chad. And Chad came from a, a Baptist background, and when he was checking our church, he's been a part of our church for many years now, Chad and I had a conversation, I remember it, yesterday I was out in the foyer, and Chad was asking some questions about what's Western Hills believe and what's the Church of Christ believe. And I said, Chad, hey, let's have an agreement here. I'm happy to have all those kind of conversations, but here's the deal. I won't judge you by the worst Baptist I've ever come across, and you don't judge me by the worst Church of Christ person you've ever come across. Chad laughed and said, that's a pretty good deal. I'll take that. And I want that to be our spirit here. That we won't define a small group of rioters, <clears throat> or we want to find a group of protesters by a small group of rioters and say, that describes everybody. Or, at the same time, we won't just describe a handful of cops and police officers that are abusing their power 
and to define all cops and police officers that way. And that we would be the ones that find a way to make peace. Because i got to believe if there's any reason that Jesus would show up today and weep over what he's seen right now, it's over the situation. And I've lived long enough now to actually see history repeat itself. Because I was a young man in college when the Rodney King trial came. And Rodney King suffered an attack and abuse, and it got caught on film. A black man suffering at the hands of white police officers. And when that trial came out, and the announcement was made that all the officers had been acquitted, L.A. burst into flames. And maybe you've heard them referred to as the L.A. riots, but it was violent and crazy, and all this pent-up frustration poured out into the streets. In the middle of that, a white truck driver named Reginald Denny, that, that just because it all happened so fast, <clears throat> found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. <clears throat> and because he was white, four men dragged him from his truck and began to beat him at an intersection in L.A. Well, as the riots unfolded, news helicopters are flying around covering this, and so they're now broadcasting this live, and they are capturing live this beating of Reginald Denny. <clears throat> Some other members of the community watched the live broadcast, and four black Americans came to the rescue of this stranger that they didn't even know, this white man. And they came and they stepped into a dangerous situation, a war zone, to rescue him and get him to the hospital. Well, the four men that had attacked Reginald Denny, they came for trial. And so they brought the rescuers up and they asked them this question. They said, why, why did you go out and help? And I never will forget the response of one of those that came to help. In fact, the one that got to him first was a young lady named Lei Yuli. And what she said when she was asked that question, why did you go? She said, my brother and I were watching the TV and we could see from the helicopters, from the news helicopters, what was unfolding. I said, we've got to go help. And he said, why? He said, we're Christians. We need to go help. See, Lei Yuli is one whose life was in alignment with the cornerstone. And what a powerful testimony that is. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus? What would you do with Jesus in your personal life? In the life of your family? And in the life of the world? that we exist in now? Will he be your cornerstone? Our praise team, our virtual praise team, they've, they've put together a song for us that attributes to this. So what I want to do is I want to pray and then I want you to hear this song. Let this song be a blessing and a prayer and perhaps even an anthem for us as we lean into Jesus and Jesus alone to be the one that we align our lives with. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I know that 
the times Jesus is going to show up in my life and he wants to weep and he wants to get down to business and clean things out. So, Father, I pray that he would fill me with the gospel. And then he'd fill each of us that, that perhaps our lives are broken already, that we would fall on the cornerstone and bring our life into alignment with that. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts <clears throat> that your church would be in alignment. Not in alignment with whatever the politics of the day are, not in line with any particular administration, not in line with any particular philosophy, but in alignment with the one who laid down his life and was willing to be broken for us. Father, help us to be in alignment with him in all things and in all ways. And may have ever watching world say, why would you do that? And we simply say, because we're Christians. Father, I ask for your grace and your peace. And I ask for you to keep leading us through these times that are just extraordinary by all kinds of measures. And that we would be faithful in light of all that's surrounding us. And we would hold up the name Jesus and make him famous. It's in his name we pray. Amen.